Good afternoon and welcome to Cinema with a Twist right here on WIOX Community Radio. Serving the Catskills region on 91.3 FM and to the rest of the wired world on WIOXradio.org. I am, as always, your curious host, Dwight Grimm, and thanks for joining me on our semi-monthly journey into the world of films and filmmaking with a dash of mixological intrigue. Welcome to episode 76. Uh, My interview today is with social justice filmmaker Kurt Shaw. Uh, he is the executive director of Shine a Light organization based out of South and Central America. Uh, we're going to be talking with him uh, about his award-winning fairy tale feature set in a modern favela in Brazil. And the film is called in English, The Princess in the Alleyway. Uh, we had a, actually had a chance to screen it uh, at the uh, Greenville Drive-In back in June. It really is a wonderful film and it's, it has a fascinating backstory. So um, it's, a, it's a great interview with Kurt which will be coming up momentarily. Uh, Let's do a quick once around the business Uh, at the box office. um, Still in the top five uh, is Incredibles 2. Uh, They are in the number five position, sliding from number four. Uh, They made $11.9 million this past weekend, bringing their domestic total up to $557 million. Uh, in the number four spot, sliding from number two was Ant-Man and the Wasp. It made $16.5 million, bringing its uh, domestic total to $165 million. Uh, in the number three spot, down from the number one spot, uh, is Hotel Transylvania 3, Summer Vacation. Uh, it made $23.7 million, uh, bringing its total to 91.7. Uh, we have a new uh, film in the number two spot. That would be Mamma Mia. Here we go again. Uh, they made just shy of $35 million in their debut debut weekend. And the new number one is a debut film, uh, Equalizer 2. Uh, it made $36 million uh, this past weekend to top the top five at the box office. Uh, we've seen quite an upswell in major motion pictures being filmed in the Catskills. Uh, though it's not official, it uh, appears that the um, that they're gearing up to film uh, The Corner Man, starring Bruce Willis as Cus D'Amato, the legendary boxing guru to Mike Tyson, uh, whose gym is and was and still is on uh, Main Street in Catskill. Uh, it, the film uh, is going to be directed by British actor Rupert Friend. Uh, police in Catskill have actually noted that the traffic will be periodically diverted uh, in and around um, Catskill for the filming from July 30th until August 20th. On the other side of the Catskills, Jim Jarmusch is filming his zombie film, The Dead Don't Die, uh, that uh, stars Selena Gomez, Adam Driver, Steve Buscemi, and Jarmusch veteran Bill Murray. Bill Murray's actually been seen. Uh, there's all sorts of sightings around town. Um... And uh, he appears to be playing a police officer. Um, On uh, the Bill Murray note, uh, Lee and I actually got to see him perform on Tuesday night at the Alish Bush Opera House at Glimmerglass, uh, just outside of Cooperstown, um, which, not surprisingly, was awesome. Um, It's the first time I've I've seen Bill once before out on the street in, uh, in Manhattan, but this was the first time I've seen him. Uh, in sort of performing mode. Uh, He was uh, teamed up with luminary classical husband-wife musicians Jan Vogler and Mira Wang, uh, as well as pianist uh, Vanessa Perez, and uh, they did a a, uh, performance called New Worlds. Um, It might have been called New Worlds, but the group covered a lot of classical material, both in terms of music and literature, 
uh, Murray Red from Hemingway, James Fenimore Cooper, Mark Twain, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, among others. And uh, it was set to music um, by all of all sorts of uh, name brand uh, musicians over the centuries, including Bach, Gershwin, Stephen Foster, and uh, they actually did one of my favorites was uh, uh, they did a performance of Moon River by Henry Mancini. Uh, which was followed up by um, uh, Murray reading uh, from Huck Finn. Uh, all right. My interview today is with Kurt Shaw. He is the executive director of Shine a Light uh, organization. Um, the, he's also a filmmaker in his own right, um, and they have made a film called The Princess in the Alleyway. That's the English uh, title for it. Um, and, uh, it has been making the rounds and, and winning awards. Um, I believe it'll be available very shortly if it's not already available out there in the online, uh, sphere. Um, this interview was recorded on June 11th, uh, when Kurt, uh, was here visiting in the United States. And so again, this is, uh, Kurt Shaw, uh, the executive director and filmmaker with shinalight.org. My guest today is Kurt Shaw. Kurt is the executive director of an organization called Shine a Light. And thanks for being here today, Kurt. Good morning. How are you, Dwight? I'm good. Um, so just talk a little bit about uh, Shine a Light and especially how it relates to, to the world of filmmaking. Well, Shine a Light didn't begin having to do anything with, with film. It started off as a network of organizations working with street kids all over Latin America. But what we found out is that one of the best ways for kids to communicate with each other and to teach other is through film. They got really excited about it. They cared about it. And so we began to do work with film. And the, the, the process that we've gone through is seeing how important it is for, for kids to be able to see themselves and show themselves in a new way. Right. But as that's happened, we've also seen at, at the beginning it's kids playing with cameras, and that's cool. If you've got a right. kid playing with, from, the, with, from the favela playing with a camera, that's awesome already. Being able to professionalize that and for that kid not only to be able to see himself mm -hmm. on the screen, but also to be able to show himself in a way that other people say, oh, wow, that's really impressive. Right. That's been important. So over the last three or four years, we've moved much more from uh, film as a, as a way to do education to film really as a professional way to, to transform how people see kids in the favelas, how right. kids, we see kids in slums and in indigenous communities. Why do you think that, um, I mean, going all the way back, why do you think that film is such a universal tool for uh, f for communicating sort of self-identity, I guess? Film is our mirror. Yeah. I don't want to get too theoretical, right. but if, if you think about a, a little kid who's just a couple of months old, the first time that little kid sees himself in the mirror and realizes that, oh, this hand that I have that I'm able to see is there, and this whole body is together, it's all me, that's the first step in identity. And when we're 12 or 13 years old, that identity isn't just in front of the mirror or in front of my parents as mirror, but it's also the social mirror. Sure. And the social mirror is television right. and movies. We did a, a really fascinating study in the favelas of the slums of Recife about 10 years ago. And we were looking at why kids who join gangs join gangs. Right. And there were two reasons. The first was that they were, they were furious at some sort of an injustice. Right. Uh, the gang from the other side of the river had killed their uncle. The police had killed their dad. And they knew that they weren't going to be able to get it back. 
But right. neither was the law, and at least by having a gun in your hand, you could feel like you're doing something. But even more important for them was the fact that they felt invisible. And I remember one kid who told me, look, I live behind these walls. Nobody looks at me, but if I put a gun to somebody's head, they're going to look at me. And if I'm successful as a criminal, well, then at least I make it on those true crime shows when they put me in, uh, in handcuffs and take me off to jail. And so what we began to see is that when the mirror that the media presents is a funhouse mirror, that you try to imitate those awful things that you see in that mirror. Right. And that's why for us it's been so important to provide some other way to think about uh, about mirroring, about the, the way that kids can see themselves and project themselves on something else. So uh, going back to the beginning for yourself, um, how, did you, how did you find yourself uh, founding Shine a Light? And, and I guess what was the original starting intent? I studied philosophy in college. This seems to have nothing to do with filmmaking. I then went on and uh, worked in Latin America, working with, uh, for, well, they're not exactly like revolutionary groups. I don't want to say I was going to be a Che Guevara, but th that's what I did after college. And one of the things that becomes really clear when you work with groups in Latin America is that this idea that the United Nations or Harvard University or that these places have the answers and the point of, uh, of, a, of uh, an American guy going to Latin America is to take the solutions is completely wrong. It's right. completely backwards. <laughs> but what we did have at that particular moment in history, the late, the late 1990s, is that we had a certain access to technology that was just beginning in Latin America. And so what we saw is that, no, we're not going to take a solution. Just because I was a Harvard grad student does not mean that I have a solution for you who's working in Bogota or in Buenos Aires. But I do have an access to the Internet, and I can show you how to, to communicate through the Internet in a way that, you're, that in Latin America was just beginning. And so we used this nascent uh, idea of, of, of websites and email and so forth. I mean, this sounds, it's only, it's only 20 years ago. Right. But uh, that was revolutionary. It was years revolutionary ago. at the time. It's <laughs> extraordinary to think about that. But as a way to say, okay, you here in Buenos Aires, um, you're really concerned with this increased number of, of kids who are coming from the countryside, and they're the ones who are new, the new street kids. Your organization is having this sort of problem. Well, in, in truth, in Lima, there's a group that's been working on this issue for the last 15 years. So why don't we use this space of the Internet as a way for you to ask them? It's not that you're going to ask somebody in Geneva right. or the Sorbonne. You're going to ask somebody who's actually been working on it. And so over the course of, of about seven or eight years, I traveled to every Latin American country, all the major cities, and just found these little groups that were working with marginalized kids, with child soldiers, with uh, working kids, with child prostitutes, and figured out ways that they could then be in touch with each other. Now, the problem was that, for instance, it was a time when lots of indigenous kids were coming on the streets, and there was only one group that really worked well with indigenous kids, and that was in, in Chiapas in the south of Mexico. And so what happened is this great service that we imagined that we were providing to people, in fact, became a real burden because groups from Bolivia, from Chile, from Peru, from Colombia, from the rest of Mexico, from Brazil were writing to this one little tiny uh, organization that was associated with the Zapatistas in southern Mexico and saying, well, help us with this, help us with this. And they didn't have time to do their work because they were answering all their emails. Right, right. And so what we decided to do is that we hired somebody who went down and spent two years with them documenting everything they do. They do. 
making movies, doing interviews, taking photos, and we turned this into a, a CD-ROM-based curriculum where That's anybody cool. could see exactly what they were doing and imitate it instead of having to write about every question. And then we continued to do that for another five years or so on child refugees, on child soldiers, on working kids, on um, working with the families of children who are living on the street. And those, it sort of became a library of references for the best practices around street kids. And that also began to show why film was so powerful. Right. So let's talk about the current film um, that you guys have been working on. Well, not working on. It's out, it's out there in the world, uh, which is The Princess in the Alleyway. What, what, what is the Portuguese? A Princesa do Beco e o Lampião Grumado. Uh, I'm not going to even attempt uh, <laughs> to uh, to replicate that. Um, so tell us a little bit about the film, both in terms of the, the storyline and then how it came to be and what, what your vision was for making this film. There's a girl who lives in the favela. She's got all of these conflicts around her, but she doesn't see it as if it's a gang war. She sees it to be a conflict between this kingdom and that kingdom. It's a fairy tale for her. And so this emerged from a, a really short movie that we made in a, in a favela in, uh, in a slum in, in Recife, Brazil, which is a very northeastern coast. And we asked the kids to show us, show us your community. What's here? What's there? And they showed us how they play hide-and-seek, and they run through everybody's house, and you can go into your neighbor's house and hide under their bed. Uh, they showed how they play soccer, where they break dance, all those sorts of things. And then finally, we ended up at this little house, and uh, one of the girls said, looked at the camera and actually put the microphone right in her mouth and said, in a, in, a, in a little whisper, this, this is the haunted house. This is where the werewolves and the vampires and the police come. So the association between werewolves, vampires, <laughs> and the police, right. that they're all put in the same, um, the same frame of the fairy tale – opened up this idea of how is it that kids who are living in these really difficult circumstances of poverty, of police brutality, of gang wars, how do they understand that? And so basically, The Princess in the Alleyway is an attempt to see this world that we generally see through City of God, through the nightly news, through reports around the Olympics or the World Cup. And But how is it that that is perceived by a 10-year-old girl who lives it? And they don't perceive it in the same way. Right. So, um, so you've come up with this idea. What's what's the what's the first step in trying to make the film? I mean, you oh, and let's talk about your cast, for example. Like you are using primarily, well, <laughs> I hate using the word real people because <laughs> actors are real people. But in, in you are using unprofessional, uh, untrained uh, humans as your as your cast. So talk a little bit about how, about the casting and how you put that together. So we did a real casting call. Uh, and there were lots of professional actors who came in order to, to, to apply for the jobs. There, there aren't a whole lot of acting jobs in Recife, and so there were a lot of professionals who came. But we also insisted on inviting breakdancers, um, gang members, uh, little kids from, from the favelas. And we had them read through lots of things. I mean, the truth of the matter is I say read through, but when you're dealing with a place where, uh, where literacy is so low, we found after a couple of times, for instance, the the guy who plays the the gangster of the kingdom of here doesn't read at all. And so we asked him to, to, to read this text. And he, uh, 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 there's no way. And then we said, OK, shut all that off. This is this is what we this is what, what we're trying to communicate. And then he went, oh, OK, great. And then he came out and was just furious. And, ah. and we did that. It was a it, so it was a fascinating encounter between 
the the professionals and the non-professionals. And in fact, the, the guy who um, represents Matutu, who's the, the 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 prince of the kingdom of there, and the brother of the the romantic mm -hmm. lead. Um, he talks constantly about the fact, oh, man, I got there, and there were these professional actors who'd done commercials and done movies, and they'd done theater. And I knew there was no chance in the world I was possibly going to get it. And then you called me back again, and I said, what? What's going on? But the truth of the matter is he had been in a gang. He right. sold drugs. He knew exactly what the ways to do it. And so while the professional actors, black uh, professional actors, were – were really almost imitating what they had seen on television or what right. they'd seen in other movies, he had a much more subtle, sophisticated, ambiguous way of doing it. He wasn't shouting everything out. He was uh, he was emoting the, the emotional conflicts that real gang members have. Right. Because the truth of the matter is that what we might see in City of God is a particularly a particular performance that those that gang members might do when they're in public. Right, but those same people, when they are with their families, when they're behind doors with other gang members, are really conflicted. They know that they're not doing the right thing. Right. They 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 know they're doing it because they think they can help their family. They're doing it because that's the only way that they can see that they can get prestige in their in their community and they're ambitious. They see it. They do it because, um, like I said, because of rage, because of visibility. But they know it's not right. Uh, and one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is exactly that. He and his sister stand on top of the, their roof, and they're looking out over the sunset. And he, he starts yelling at her, what, what are you doing uh, starting to be the girlfriend of this guy from the, the, the rival favela? And then he sort of pulls himself in and he says, look, Sila, I, I know what I do isn't right. I know that I am making you and your mom cry. But somebody has to do this. There's no police. There's got to be some sort of order. There's, because otherwise people are just going to die in the anarchy of it. And and that I really see as the the profundity of the movie and the the way that that gets played out. We couldn't have directed a professional actor to do that. Right. Absolutely. But he was able to pull that out because he lived it. Right. So one of the themes in the movie uh, or you know one of one of the things that, so you're you have filmmakers who are actually trying to film gangsters in the favelas so you've got this sort of you know kind of meta thing happening as well just talk a little bit about you actually filming in the favelas is it tough uh, obviously you have relationships in some of these places where you're working but are people still suspicious of you know uh, an, an american with a camera in the favela like talk a little bit about the access and about what you needed to do in order to film in the favelas i'm going to start answering with a story that may seem that it's not exactly in the right in the same direction but it, it'll illustrate so right at the beginning of when we created favela news which is the, a, a group of young um, people from the favela who have become journalists and go and, and represent things that are good about their communities uh, right at the beginning of it, before it, it had a lot of hits on, on, on the Internet, uh, lots of views on, on Facebook, a couple of the, the young reporters went to a community they didn't know, got out the camera, got out the microphone, and started to ask people, oh, so tell us about what's interesting going on here. Can you, can you show us this? And uh, they noticed that everyone was looking at them really strangely. And eventually one old woman came up and, and tapped her on the, the shoulders and said, I think you're in the wrong place. Nobody's died here. <laughs> <laughs> because their impression right. is that the only reason that you would possibly have a camera in the favela is to show some murder. So what does that mean uh, for uh, 
an American and his Brazilian wife, but who's from another part of Brazil, to come into a favela like this. It is so unexpected when we say that we're looking for other things that it sort of it breaks the frame. Right. If we were to go in and, and be uh, and look for exactly the things that they know that we're supposed to look for and that though they expect they also get angry about, it would be a really different story. But th we go in and we are we're teaching little kids. When we first started there, like Okado, who's the, uh, the lead actor in mm -hmm. the movie, we met Okado when he was 11 years old. Right. We taught him how to, to make movies. He was, a, he was learning how to break dance. We began to work on acting, uh, helped him to make his first hip-hop album. And it's, when you are working with little kids, it's an entirely different setup. Right. It, it, we were also during that first time when we began to work in the favelas of Brazil, we did a really cool interview with a couple of community organizers in a favela in, in Rio. And we were asking them about, okay, well, so you're, you're setting up these, these programs for kids and you're very explicit about the fact that you're providing a way so that kids don't have to go into drug trafficking to make right. money. You're doing job training, you're doing, uh, um, uh, after school homework and your uh, homework support and tutoring and you're saying really clearly so that you don't have to and w so the kids won't go into the gangs and what do the gangs say about that don't the gangs see this as a as a threat they said no not at all because gang members have kids and they don't want their kids to be gang members right. they know that this is not a life to be they they see themselves as sort of sacrificing their own generation so that their kids won't have to and so the truth of the matter is we've never had any problems with gangs at all or with local people because we're working with kids and they see that as an as a chance that maybe their kids will not go through the same things that right. they have. Interesting. Now, did um actually can I can I say another story sure, about this absolutely. here first? Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's great about working with the camera in the favela is the way that it helps it teaches people to see their own communities in different ways. Right. It's like I remember as we were filming The Princess in the Alleyway that one of our, our, our camera women, so we had a, a professional director of photography, but the two cameras were held by uh, two of the young women who have grown up in favela news. And uh, she was looking for supporting images for, for this, and so she um, found a, a wall, and it was a really beautifully painted wall, not intentionally, but the way that the, the paint had had started to, to, to peel and the light on it was, was really beautiful. And we used it as a supplementary image in, in one of the, the, the scenes. And so saw her filming this, and there was a, a boom mic over it so that we could make sure to get the ambient sound. And she left, and I was just standing there cleaning some stuff up. And I looked, and I saw a couple of women who lived in that little alleyway for their entire lives. And they walked over to that, uh, to that wall that they had walked by their entire life and started to look at it and started to say, oh, you know, there is something really beautiful, beautiful about that. Right. There, there are so many things in our daily lives that are, in fact, beautiful, whether it's the sun coming through the, the oak leaves that I see outside right. here or whether that is um, the, the really strange light that a street light can cast on a, on a wall in the favela. But there, there are those little moments of beauty. But, especially when you're told that you live in these miserable slums and just, you don't see it. Right. And it's a great thing to be, uh, to feel as if, oh, there's some beauty in my life. A after the, the film, um, a couple of, of months later, the, 
one of the young women who works with Favela News and, and trains uh, the, the kids in the favela of, of City of God. She, um, she got there on, to do her class, and she saw that the, the little plaza where they work was completely different. Painted the walls, all the graffiti was gone. All of the construction remains had been taken away. The trash was gone. Uh, the, the guy who works as a um, what's the word in English? A, a, uh, a welder. Uh, it had had built public statues. He'd put a dinosaur in the middle of this park. <laughs> and uh, she said, "Whoa, this is so great!" And it was a wonderful place to work. Mm-hmm. And the next time I went there, I asked a couple of the men who had organized it um, what was going on. And why they choose, chose to do it, and he said, "You know, now that we know that the world is looking at our our favela, we got to make it pretty." Nice. And so there, there's something really cool about that. The moment that the the the, the community itself sees that right. it's going to be in a mirror, well, then let's get some makeup on. Let's make ourselves better. Let's make ourselves proud. Right. That's awesome. Um, you cannot talk about uh, a Brazilian film, uh, especially yours, without talking about music. Um, and music is such an integral part of your film. Talk a little bit about just the importance, and and it also plays a role in the uh, in, in the in the uh, the fantastical plot as well. So talk a little bit about the importance of music in in Brazilian film. The plot involves a magical fiddle. That the idea is that there was a peasant's re- a peasant revolt uh, about almost a hundred years ago, and that during that peasant revolt, someone discovered a magical fiddle, and this fiddle, if you played it, it would transform war into dance. And in fact, this has a, a certain um, historical basis because there was a dance that was invented by these revolutionaries that's now become a dance that's that's danced during carnival. And um, so we needed somebody who could play a magical fil- fiddle really well at this point, and. We knew a, a fiddle player from a, a city a little bit north of, of Recife because we'd, we'd worked with him before. We'd done an interview with him and said, hey, would, would you think about being uh, Severina, the, the, protagonist, the girl protagonist's father? It's not going to be a lot of texts, but we, we really need you to um, – to, uh, we need somebody who, who can play the fiddle like you can. He said, oh, yeah, this would be great. We did the screen test for him, and he was really good for somebody who would never done theater before. Um, and then he said, you know what? I've got this album, the one that you like so much. I'm just going to give it to you because I, I, I believe in this project. This is something that's important. And it is a beautiful, beautiful album. It's a combination of traditional fiddle music with some urban touches with really good drums. And then they mix in some, like, Argentine gypsy fiddle and what it does is it captures this connection between the imagination of the countryside because that's so important in in the way that the girls think dream of what uh, of their of their fairy tale and the gritty urbanity of the of the movie and so it has it really it communicates this this feeling of of tension between urban and rural, past and modern, and at the same time, it's just beautiful. Then we've also put in a couple of, of songs that are hip hop or combining hip hop with maracatu, and it. Uh, I, I personally think that one of the best things about the film is the soundtrack and the way that from the beginning to the end, you're you're brought into it. It's. I mean, it's a, it's an absolutely spectacular soundtrack, um, and just really gives give so much life to 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 the film um and in that 
So just thinking a little bit more about the okay, you finished the film. Um, presumably, it's now you're now representing it back to the cast and the folks in the favela. What is the what's the response when they see the film? We we showed the film in a lot of festivals around the world before we were able to show it in Chesifi again. Um, festivals have these rules about uh, first sure. showings and things yep. like that. So it was a good year after we'd filmed that we finally uh, got the the biggest theater in uh, in the city of Chesifi and and put it on, and it's this beautiful 1930s Art Deco film palace which uh, was going to be sold at some point and this the city bought it and it's been turned into a, an art theater. There are 600 seats in the place. It's big. And it was full. It was amazing to stand outside in the, in the theater line. And you could, it's right on the, the main street downtown. And I just stood out watching people come in. And I could almost pick out and say, oh, that person who was walking here, they're coming to see the film. Because they were all young people from the favelas who had dressed well, who had bathed really carefully. The girls had put on makeup. The The boys had put new braids in their hair. And this was clearly a moment where a certain kind of favela identity was being constructed. Mm -hmm. I was talking to one young man that we'd worked with when he was about 15, 15 years ago. What is now a father and right. a community leader in, the, in, the, in another favela. And he said, this is so exciting because it's the first time where I see all of the, he called them favela intellectuals. In the same place. <laughs> right. It's right. the capoeira dancers. Good. It's sure. the b-boys. It's the funk singers. It's the, uh, the, the, the kids who help other kids with their homework. And all of them suddenly see that they are a part of the same movement because they all see themselves reflected in this movement. Right. And we did a lot of, of uh, Favela News, which is the, the project that all of this is based around, gets about 200,000 hits on, on Facebook every month. And so it has a big audience. And, right. And what happened is this movie, as we drew those people for the first time into a cinema, and this the cinema space, which in spite of the fact that it's from the city, is really uh, it's an elite place. It's where the it's where Brazilian avant-garde cinema is shown. It's mm -hmm. it's not a place where the favela feels comfortable. Right. And suddenly they took it over. Right. They occupied this space, right. and it felt so exciting. And it's it's great to watch the movie with people from the favela because they laugh at jokes that people in New York or Paris don't get. Right. Uh, and it, it was great. It was, it was a and fantastic how the, thing. How, how did the cast feel about it? They cried and cried and cried. Um, the, the, the lead actress is a 10 year old girl or <laughs> was sure. now 12 by the time that, right. that, that we showed it. Um, estranged from her father, really difficult situation. Uh, she lives in a shack that's unbelievably poor. And um, her her mother came, her, fa her estranged father came. And to watch this father hug her at the end and say how proud he was of her, you could just... I mean, the the entire filmmaking process was almost worth it to see the the pride in the eyes of, of this father who ha hadn't really seen his daughter very much in the last right. ten years. It was an extraordinary thing. Yeah, and those are the moments that you're like it makes <laughs> it makes everything worth the trouble yeah. of filmmaking because it's not an easy 
It is not an easy task. No, it's not an easy task. And in the favela, it's really difficult. You were asking yeah. about what are the challenges of filming in the favela. It's not the gangs. It's not the... It's that uh, there's a, a guy who's drunk, and he just won't stop yelling. Right. Their uh, favelas are always under construction, and so there's somebody who's cutting rebar. Right. And you, if that is in the background, there's yeah. no way you're going to get sound. And so we had a whole team of production assistants whose only job was to, to run around and say, okay, in, in 15 seconds, we are going to start filming. Would you please just turn off that, that, that circular saw for, for five minutes and to be there with that person and say, okay, now you can do it again. Um, so those are really the challenges. Right. right. Absolutely. And this is, the, this is the place where people live. We were filming in a really narrow alleyway where there were about 100 people living. And so there, there's a line at the at one end of the alley and at the other end of the alley where, okay, can you just wait like two minutes while we film and finish this scene? And then, okay, now you can go through. Right. Hi, this is Jeff Centerman, co-host of Catskill Digest on WIOX and executive director of the Catskill Center, a supporter of WIOX. The Catskill Center in Arkville is a nonprofit organization that has been protecting and fostering the environmental, cultural, and economic well-being of the Catskills by providing public open spaces at preserves in Woodstock and Platte Clove and managing the gateway to the Catskill Park at the Maurice D. Hinchy Catskill Interpretive Center on State Route 28 in Mount Tremper. The Catskill Center, where conservation creates opportunity. Learn more at 845-586-2611 or catskillcenter.org. WIOX is supported by Home Goods of Margaretville, corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Margaretville, New York, offering professional and at-home chefs in the central Catskills region, cooking basics and tools of the trade. Home Goods carries Cuisinart, KitchenAid, All Clad, local pottery, and more. Open seven days a week, 845-586-4177 or hgom.net. You are listening to Cinema with a Twist on WIOX Community Radio 91.3 FM. I am, as always, your curious host, Dwight Grimm, uh, and we are conducting an interview with uh, Kurt Shaw, the executive director of Shine a Light organization, um, and he's also the filmmaker behind uh, the Brazilian film The Princess in the Alleyway. The... um so this obviously was uh, this film was a narrative piece, but you also do a lot of documentary pieces. Um, talk a little bit um, before getting into the sort of into the content of some of the documentary pieces. Just talk a little bit about the difference in in making documentary film versus making narrative film, especially in in your environment. You know, honestly, I think that what we do challenges deconstructs the difference between documentary and, and fiction. Um, the Princess in the Alleyway is a, uh, it's clearly a fiction. It's a, it's a fairy tale. Right. At the same time, when we, we talk to people from the favela, they will say, you know, this documents our life much, much better than anything that we see on the news, any right. documentary that we've ever seen about the favela. The difference with a, a documentary, I think, or the, the way you categorize it is much more the frame that you put it in. Um, and the degree to which you're explicit about the process of making it. Right. The the most recent documentary we did is it's actually you know it comes from a very similar position, but it, I think it might explain. So what we did is we had one group of kids from the favela 
uh, actually the, this group of kids that, that we've worked with for a long time. And they made a film about what they imagined life to be like for a middle-class kid. And then a group of middle-class kids who made a film about what they imagined life to be like in the favela. And each of these groups then showed their movie to the other group. And then we got them together. They played for a day in the favela, and they played for a day in the middle-class condominium. And the reason that this make it really illustrates the relationship between fiction and documentary is each of these groups of kids made a fictional film. And the fictional film itself is actually, most of them are pretty compelling. They're not, they're not well filmed right. uh, because they're little eight-year-olds who are holding right. the camera. But they are narratively compelling. They made good stories. But what's really interesting is the process by which they made it. And so the, the documentary aspect of this fictional process, and it wasn't a process that we fictionalized. We invented the, these groups. We organized the way that they would work. But what's fascinating is that we show how all this works and during the whole time we interviewed the kids right. and so explain why it is that you chose to to name the the villain this and in fact the reason that they had chosen to name the the villain is because they wanted it have to be uh temer who's the president of brazil who came to power in a coup two years ago uh and the other half was going to be uh, they put an r in it so it's tremer to include trump uh, because they <laughs> saw him as the great villain of the world um, and so why is it that that happens? Or uh, tell me about what you're afraid of about this encounter with kids from this other place or what you're dreaming about or asking the middle-class kids, why do favelas exist? Um, and this whole process was fascinating and completely and utterly unexpected. So, you know, what have you taken? Uh, so this has now been an ev evolution uh, through media, like all media. Uh, not just filmmaking, but uh, news reporting and and so on. Like where, I guess, where does Shine a Light go, and what you know, what are the, I guess, the most compelling lessons you've learned along the way that you're now putting more emphasis behind for future projects? I, I think the most compelling lesson is that we sort of think about media as entertainment or as communication, um, and the fact of the matter is that 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 uh, the media is really physical, it's economic, that it provides prestige to certain people and provides prestige in certain ways. And so when you are making a film about some group that is marginalized, that's outside of the, the mainstream, you have a really big responsibility to see what way that community wants to present itself. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of great movies that denounce the, the terrors of injustice in the Brazilian favela, among indigenous peoples, and so forth. And there's a role for that, clearly. But that's not the way that people on the margins want others to see them. Right. It's the same way that I don't want them to see them. I've suffered injustices in my life, but I don't want a movie to be made about when the police charged me with their, their horses. I don't want my, a movie to be made about... Um, I mean, whatever, I don't, the point is that that's, right. not, that's not the important thing. I've got a different presentation that I want. And I think that it's really, really important, whoever you are making your movie about, if you're going to be thinking about it ethically and politically, to think very concretely about how it is that those people want to be seen. And then to return the movie to them and, and make sure that it is. We um, Before we did any showing, before we took it to any... Um, film festival, we showed it to every actor there and to the communities themselves and said, does this represent who you want to be? Right. 
And that's really important. And as we go on, and we have a film that's coming up about indigenous people in the, in the Amazon, about the relationship between German migrants and indigenous people in the south of Brazil. But that's the essential part, is to, to remind ourselves we have a, an ethical, symbolic relationship with this community, and there are going to be really big impacts of it. Right. Some of them that we want, some of them that we don't but at least have the people who are involved in it participating in those decisions so that they can feel as if the mirror that gets put in front of them is something that makes them proud. Right. Um, my loose understanding is I believe – so there are other organizations similar to Shine a Light around the world in other regions of the world. Do you have connections with them, and are there uh, similarities and differences that are that you are aware aware of and and how do you how is that communication happen there's an amazing group that does I, probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast will know about the 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 inuit and inupiat um mm -hmm. film schools in uh, in very northern canada and they're amazing and the, the that's just an inspiration to us and occasionally we get to film festivals and are at the same place with them and that's it's stunning to be able to see how they did 20 years ago, what we're beginning to do now, and with much less technology and right. in a place that's unforgiving and beautiful. Um, there is a, a, it's called Ambulante in Mexico, which does almost exactly the same stuff that we do. It's financed by Gael, Gael Garcia Bernal, um, the, the great actor. And, uh, and the, the training that they do for both indigenous kids in the countryside and, and urban youth. Is, they've made some really, really good movies. We were at the festival with them last year and very, very impressed. And it's great to be able to have those points of communication. In Brazil, there's a group called um, Vídeo nas Aldeias, Video in the Villages, which works explicitly training um, indigenous, young indigenous filmmakers. And they now have a couple of, of indigenous filmmakers who are making really, really important documentaries. Um, so it's great to be a part of a movement where you feel that. I think a, a difference that we have from them is that, in general, a lot of those groups imagine this as both political work and as job training. And it's, I guess, a little bit in the work that we do in the favela, you can see it as job training. A, a, a couple of the, the people who we've trained in camera and in, uh, in sound have gone on and worked in other movies. But the truth of the matter is it's much more popular education and transforming the economy of prestige. Do you, are there films out there uh, that you have seen that you're, have, have really affected you and your work in this arena? The, the, the proper response is, oh, you know, Eisenstein, it's so important, or right. Jean Rouche, oh, man, Jean Rouche, is, his work in Africa. Within... No, the truth of the matter is that the, the films that have most influenced what we're doing are The Princess Bride, right. Goonies, <laughs> um, because we, we, we want – when you're working with people in the favela and you want that to be your prime audience – and, yeah, we want people in uh, – in upstate New York and in Paris and in Azerbaijan to be able to see it. But really the principal audience of something that we're doing is, um, is the people who are making it and the people who are like them. So it's important to understand what it is, what sort of movies they like and what makes sense to them. And so clearly we're not just imitating Hollywood, but there are a lot of uh, narrative and visual tropes that we're going to be taking out of that or out of Brazilian telenovelas. 
that's that's the visual um, language that that people need in order to be able to to watch a movie. If if we made an absolutely beautiful movie inspired by Lucrecia Martel, the great Argentine cineast, um, it could be great and it might win a prize in Sundance, but it's not going to touch the people who we want to touch. And so we're we're actually very conscious of the fact that we are making. Uh, movies that use a popular vernacular. Right. Strange question, but how how would the average resident of a favela see a film? Is it you know in this modern age, every you know people have phones or like, but how how would they go about seeing a film? Young people in the favela all have smartphones and have generally good internet connections. They will make a point of skimping on lots of other things so that they can have a phone. First of all, because right. it's a way of saying, I'm included in the world. Right. You get downtown and you have a phone that's nice, and people say, oh, okay, well, this, this person can, can be allowed into the shopping center. Right. Because there are actually security guards outside right. of shopping centers that say, no, you're, you're from the favela, you can't come in. Um, so that's definitely one way. The other is um, we, either, we have, but also many groups, run city clubs. Okay. So uh, you get a, a, a cheap LED, pro- LED projector. Uh, you borrow the um, the sound system that the guy who really likes funk music next door has. Right. You plug him into your, your phone, and you put it on the wall. And 100 kids come, and they watch it. So that's a really important way. And then the other is that we accept that piracy is how the favela communicates with each other. And, of course, it would be nice if... Uh, we made more money from the film and were able to, right. to to put that back into the favela. But the truth of the matter is that it's much more important that people see it. Right. And so uh, we always partner with local pirates and say, "Okay, you've got these, <laughs> you've got these DVDs. We're going to give you a couple. Make as many copies as you want, and we suggest that you probably sell at this price." Funny. So in actually working with the local pirates, now this this, this fascinates me, and it, but it make and it makes complete sense. But so. Uh, is there any, this sounds crazy, but is there any way to track that? Would you actually go back to the pirates and say, how many, how many DVDs did you sell of our work or how many or perhaps even give away, but like, is there any way that you can track? We haven't done this for Princess in the Alleyway yet. We did it for a, um, a CD project that we did a couple of years ago, which was a, a, a hip hop compilation right. of young artists from the favela. And I didn't do the research on it, and the the people who were going after it, um, it didn't have the the academic sophistication to be able to know exactly. But what is interesting about that project is that we know very clearly how fast things move. Just two or three days after the the pirates started to take it, we went to um, a show. Uh, of another hip-hop artist in another part of the city that really we didn't see any friends in common or anything like that. And there were little 12-year-old kids who were already rapping the lyrics of the song that we had given to Pirates two days before. Funny. So, but I think it's a really good idea. We're going to start working with releasing The Princess in the Alleyway in all these ways in about two weeks in the favelas. And it'll it'll be interesting to talk with the pirates. We should... I, Go back I, to him a I, month I, afterwards I, and I, say. I love the idea of like if there's some way to like. I, you, to some degree, it's almost like why I I would almost want to incentivize the pirates to beyond them making money on your film. But it's like you know, can you keep track of of the of the records? Because I just think I would be interested to know, you know, and especially if you're able to show it 
in relation to whatever else they're there's you know their movement at the time is it uh you know they've got avengers out and they've got princess in the alleyway how's princess in the alleyway doing against avengers like i would just if, to me i would just be one wanting to see how the the data stacks up yeah it'd be fascinating um and i love that idea i mean you know it, it is a, a situation where clearly you know trying to trying to monetize the film is not a, you need to do it as a filmmaker but at the same time you're trying to get the you have so many other parts of the film that are important to get out there. Right. And we're also going to sell it on, on Vimeo on demand on Amazon and the people who buy that will, will contribute, which is a fine segue into into letting us know how, so, so my, for my uh, listeners here, well, interestingly enough, um, uh, this, the show actually gets carried. I have listeners in 60 different countries, so they should be able to, uh, access, uh, this film in a variety of different ways. But if they want to, if they want to see princess in the alleyway, how, how that's going to be out soon. Yeah. A general release in about two weeks. And, um, so two weeks, actually, two weeks from today, which for, will be the sort of middle of June of 2018. Yeah. Right? Sort of late June, 2018. Okay. And, um, so Type Princess in the Alleyway into Google. There aren't that many things that are nope, similar to that. I, I was Googling it. And, uh, or or shinealight.org is the website where you can then get and paste it through. Cool. Um, and just a little more about, like, where where do we see the direction of, of Shine a Light uh, from here? I mean, is is it – and at the moment, it seems the focus is primarily Brazil? Yeah. Okay. Um, and where where do we see it going in the next – 10 or 20 years the process of a professionalization of the movies and looking for audiences in different ways that's really touched us it's it's fascinating the way that as you make the movies of higher and higher quality and therefore able to reach a broader audience it doesn't just have a broad audience impact on that audience around the world it also has a much more powerful impact on the people who are making the movies right so by moving away from the model of, pop of popular education to professional films, we're actually making popular education better. Very good. And so, for instance, the next project that we'll, we're working on, that we're dreaming of in big terms, is a, uh, a, 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 the, the joke that I tell of a 10-second elevator pitch is it's a, um, a children's detective comedy about genocide. Um, <laughs> Which is a, a the, the story of uh, little kids in the south of Brazil who find a, a trunk in the basement of the church, and at first it's a Buster Keaton kind of thing where the the priest is trying to hide the trunk and they're trying to find it and they find uh, an Indian headdress and a sarabatana which is a blowgun and eventually they find a book that's written in German, but gradually it begin, becomes these kids using that to research the history of their community and discovering that their community was, in fact, founded on the the migrants, uh, uh, one family of migrants uh, contracting Indian killers to kill the Indian tribe that was next door and to destroy the really interesting and productive relationship that the German migrants and the, um, and the indigenous people had been developing up until that point. And so... Again, actors will all be local kids, indigenous kids, and uh, and the children of German immigrants. Um, the will train the filmmakers, but the idea would be that to put enough time and money into this so that it's a Netflix series, uh, and and therefore to reach that much more of a, of a population, and help not just this particular community of of Germans and uh, and indigenous people 
to reconcile themselves and almost forgive themselves for their history, but also in so many other places where you've got encounters between colonizers and oppressed peoples to help them think through that, whether that's in South Africa or in... Sister had a crystal voice, she played a silver tone from a Kamari voice. By yes, songs in Monroe hair, she sure could turn the boys' heads to stare. Swim where saunter tan and haunt them was all she learned in school. Books were for the other girls, and the other girls were fools. Texas back in 69 was driving movies and dashboard lights. Father waltzed her down the aisle Cause college didn't suit her style Sad truth was she could barely read If you told dear father, well he wouldn't believe you The telephone rang and drove mother insane From the heart slept on the shelf Sister's gone and she won't be home Cause she didn't take care of herself Texas back in 69 was driving movies and dashboard lights Can't you hear your daughter crying? Father, wake up, her youth is dying. The kids are grown, her husband's gone away. And it's a shame because she had such a lovely face. Can't you see she needed more than oh, what a pretty child. You never taught her truth from life. Texas back in 69 was driving movies and dashboard lights. That was Nancy Griffith with Drive-In Movies and dashboard lights. Right before that, we had a little bit of a hitch uh, just at the end of the uh, interview there um, with uh, Kurt Shaw. Um, but just to wrap up, uh, we were speaking earlier 
with Kurt Shaw, who is the executive director of uh, ShineLight.org uh, and the filmmaker behind A Princess in the Alleyway. Um, if you want to learn more about ShineLight, um, you can go to their website, ShineLight.org, um, and the same handle uh, is available at uh, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ShineLight.org to learn more about that wonderful organization um, and that film princess in the alleyway i believe is out at the moment so we'll uh, we'll investigate that get a link and put it up on the cinema with a twist facebook page um since we're talking about brazil makes sense to um uh, talk a little bit about brazilian cocktails obviously i believe we've 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 talked about the caipirinha before which is the obvious uh choice when you're talking about brazil and cocktails uh since it is in fact the national cocktail uh of brazil um, and it is a relatively simple yet deadly effective uh, cocktail made of cachaça, which is like a, a sugar cane uh, distillate, um, limes, uh, you know, crushed crushed limes and sugar, a little bit of soda. Um, my recommendation is never more, never have more than three. Bad things happen after you've gone past three caipirinhas. But uh, it was, you know, it was funny. I was actually looking up a couple other. Um, a couple other Brazilian cocktails. Uh, you know, everybody knows the caipirinha, but what's what else? There's got to be others, right? So, um, they, and they do. And the funny thing is, almost all of them uh, are cachaça based. Um, they have one called uh, Caju uh, Amigo. Uh, I'm gonna guess that the Caju uh, is uh, Brazilian for cashew. <laughs> um, and basically, uh, you you sort of take. Uh, uh, they're calling it here. I'm reading cashew fruit juice. I assume they mean cashew milk uh, and cachaça, and you mix those together um, to give you the cashew amigo. Uh, and then they also have a <laughs> they have another one. Uh, there's a, a drink called capeta, um, and that actually means devil in Portuguese, which I guess it sounds like this is a drink that you usually have around um, around the time of carnival. Uh, and that is cachaça, condensed milk, cinnamon, honey, and guarana, which is a tropical berry native to uh, the Amazon. Um, it's supposed to be quite good, and it sounds like the uh, the berry, I, I guess the, the berry contains some sort of energetic uh, elements to it. So um, it's a little, <laughs> I guess it's the Brazilian equivalent of like a, a, you know, Red Bull and vodka kind of thing. Anyway, that's the, the capeta or the, or the devil. 